From the Shumway Theater in downtown Rockford, this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast, presented by Rockford Writers Guild. Here's your host, Connie Coons. Thank you, Jesse. It's true. I am Connie Coons, and this is the Guilty Pleasures Podcast. The month is still April. It's still season one, but this is episode 19, and Bahia El Shabazz is back in the Shumway studio, this time with her fiction novel entitled Come Back and Tell Me Everything. Hi, Bahia. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm just fine. Is there anything you'd like to tell us about this before we begin? Um, Yeah, it is a YA novel. Um, Might still be a little inappropriate for younger um, listeners. Um... That's probably about it. Okay. Parents, we'll leave it to your discretion. There is some subject matter in here that is intense. So you guys make the call. Let's go. My father, who is not just fat, but enormous, calls out to me from his dark back bedroom. Coming, I yell, then sit behind my eyelids on the closed toilet seat for another minute, trying to only think about blankness. Shayna! When I hear my name again, I flush and obey. He's beached in his bed, not a whale, a blown-up sea star, or a deep-sea creature you've never seen, fingers so fat they can't form a fist, eyes barely there. Shea butter, I've been calling you, he wheezes. I know it's impossible, but sometimes I've dreamt of him eating one cheesy chip too many and exploding, leaving nothing but a stickiness all over the walls and carpet. Did you get what I asked for, he huffs. He just woke up. I went shopping hours ago, but I've been trying to put off bringing his snacks to him. I try to keep him from taking in more salt and sugar than air. A lot of days I fail. I collect the wrappers on the floor. I see Granny brought him White Castle again while I was out. He asks what I'm making for dinner, struggling to open the chips I've placed on his tray. Burrito bowls, I say, and feel his head. He's always too warm. I don't know how I would know if he were really sick. He nods and closes his eyes. He's never been inside a Chipotle. The last time he walked out of the door was almost five years ago, before they'd built one on our side of the city. It's too expensive, Granny grumbles, when I ask her to bring him something a little fresher and not fried. I start to smash up the avocado and realize I forgot stupid cilantro, that the garlic sitting on the windowsill is dried out. I have to run back to the store. I pop my head into his doorway to say, he's on to the oatmeal cream pies and has eaten almost the whole box already. Okay, he says. Can you pick up the remote for me, baby? The white frosting collecting in the corners of his mouth makes him look contagious. When I hand it to him, he nods and lifts his hand from his stomach, just barely to wave. Right at the front of the store, there's a bin of his favorite chips on sale, two for five, but I keep walking. They have a special on Cherry Pepsi, 10 for 10. I pass a little woman rolling fresh cookies through the produce section. The smell makes me think of my dad getting me one whenever we came here, 
letting me eat it as I sat in the cart and he shopped for whatever my mom needed. I wonder if he ever paid for them after I'd eaten all the evidence. I'm sure he didn't. I think about bringing him one cookie or a few. I follow the cart and watch her place them in the little plastic cubbies next to the bagels and donuts. Some cookies are so warm and soft they break as she tries to lay them on top of each other. I count the kinds he would like, all ten of them, except maybe oatmeal raisin, though he would probably eat it anyway. They have double chocolate and peanut butter M&M, but I back up slowly until I'm surrounded by vegetables. I just grab what I came for. Excuse me, says a soft voice behind me in checkout. She has the most beautiful giant brown alien eyes and dark curls down her back, so full they might be fake, a nose ring in her right nostril. She's looking at me like she wants me to remember her, but I don't. Aren't you Justin's baby? She's smiling and grimacing behind her fingers like she's afraid of how I'll react to being bothered or that I won't be me. When I nod, she drops her arms and squeals. Oh my goodness, Shayla! You used to be so little. How old are you now? Oh, it's Shayna, actually. Sixteen, I say. Sorry, yes, Shayna. I just knew he always called you Shea Butter. Wow. She shakes her head, holding my eyes and hers for way too long. How is he? He's good, I lie, turning away from her. I don't know if she's heard what he's become. I'm sure she must have. Tell him Sandra says hey. Well, Sandy, she says. I look back and give her a quick smile. She squeezes my forearm, letting her head fall slightly to the side in a sorry way I can't stand. In a year and nine months from now, this small city will be nothing but an eye roll at a party to me. I'll tell strangers, oh, I'm from this place you'd never want to go. Maybe I'll have dreams about it, but I'll never cross into its borders again. Maybe, after a few years of not even mentioning it, I can forget it exists. I can lose the first 18 years of my life to a willful amnesia, erase everything that has happened here. I know that not long after I'm gone, if my dad is still like this, he'll be dead. His heart will quit, or a tumor will grow to the size of a skull in his stomach, without anyone noticing, or he'll choke on a wing bone when I'm no longer in earshot to save him. So my plan is to get him out of the bed before I graduate. Then maybe he can move with my grandma down south, where all the rest of her family has been asking her to join them for years. My mom is leaving with her boyfriend, all the way to California, where he lived for years before he fell for her on a visit home. His name is Todd, with one D, a black guy who had braces when they met, who uses sticky product to turn the top of his hair crunchy. He has hazel-colored contacts and the kind of body my dad had when my mom loved him. He wears those tight swimsuit material shirts to show it off. He's some kind of computer guy during the day, and occasionally works as a bouncer at a white techno club on weekend nights. I don't know why she's with him, but that's who she claims to love. As soon as I graduate, they're leaving. Todd says he can work from anywhere, and she just graduated from beauty school, but hasn't even been looking for a job. I don't think I've been invited to follow, and I don't think I'd want to anyway. I don't know where I'll go, just that I can't ever get stuck. Hopefully my best friend Jada will go wherever I do. 
and everyone else I leave behind can go up in a burst of flames. Daddy, I never know which part of him to touch. I tap the naked belly of the creature that has swallowed his shoulder. The bone must be so far sunken down, living like a lobster at the bottom of the sea. He opens his eyes. I pull up his tray and show him his burrito bowl. He frowns but starts mixing it together and taking bites. Someday when I bring him his food, I'm going to shake and shake him and slap him and scream until I realize his eyes are not ever going to open again, and then I'll call people. First my grandma, then my mom. I guess the police, too. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to do that. I worry sometimes that they will have to cut him up to get him out of the house. I've had nightmares about it, that they tell me it's my job and hand me a saw. Daddy, Mom invited me over. She technically didn't invite me, not in the traditional way, but I texted her and asked if it was okay that I join them tonight, and she said sure. So I'm going, okay? He chokes a little. There have been times he's turned colors, and I've dialed the nine and the first one before he's forced it up or down. I wait until he's breathing and chewing again. Want anything before I leave? He looks up sharply going over there. You know you're killing me, right, baby? Tears build up fast and race down his cheeks to his bare chest. It seems impossible for it to take this long to get over someone. We stare at each other, but I can't let him pull me in. Daddy, what do you want before I go? He touches the tears under his eyes carefully, like they're sharp. His nails have gotten too long again. He might cut himself. I tell him to stop. A lot of times watching him, I feel like I'm in a dimension where giants exist and I've been taken as their tiny slave. What do you need? Nothing, he sobs. But just after I make it through his doorway, he calls me back. My cherry Pepsi. And put some snacks where I can reach so I don't gotta call your grandma. She ain't feeling too good today. I get the half of a two liter he has left. I get his pizza-flavored combos. I get an empty gas station slushy cup, fill it with water, and beg him, for me, just please, please drink it before the pop. At my mom and Todd's apartment, they've made lemon pepper salmon and kale salad. They sip wine. Only a few more years, Shayna, Todd says, filling their glasses halfway, as if I'm over here dying to drink with them. Almost five, I say, and take a gulp of my water, trying to keep my eyes straight. Oh, right, you're only 16, he says, shifting his food to one side of his mouth. I always think you're almost grown. I know he's joking, and I think it's also supposed to be a compliment. I don't think he realizes how sometimes he sounds like a creep. He's just awkward and has nothing real to say to me. I don't know how to respond, so I just stuff my mouth with salad. Even though he tries embarrassingly hard to be nice to me, I can't love him. But I do love eating the food other people make and seeing my mom. 
He plays in her hair like it's as normal as tapping your knee. She gazes at him like he's the open ocean. They make me blush and look around the room at other things. Their place is everything mine and dad's isn't. They have fish whose tank water is see-through. Their oversized couch has no stains and it smells like lavender. Their bathroom is so white it hurts. I have to turn off the lights to pee. On the back of the toilet, there's one of those little glass jars with oil and cinnamon-smelling sticks. There's no clutter anywhere in sight, no dirty dishes. They have a small balcony, two tiny dogs, sliding glass doors that let in the sunset. How'd you like my great white shark and roasted seaweed? Todd asks, taking my empty plate to the sink. He acts just like a sitcom uncle. He makes me wish I had one. I stare at my mom as I say slowly, The salmon and kale was delicious. Thanks, Todd. She gives me an undercover warning look, poking out her lips just a little. Oh, is that what that was? I thought we had shark and seaweed. I guess that will be tomorrow night. He's so goofy, I sometimes think he must be playing a role for me. This can't be how he talks to her always. It can't be the voice he uses on her when they're all alone. But if it is an act, he's great at staying in character, going on three years. And if it's not, I don't know what that means about my mom. I can force a smile, but I can't churn up a laugh. We move to the couch. When Todd goes off to another room with his computer, I lay my head on my mom's shoulder and exhale. Her acrylic nails tickle swirls and lines down my arms. If my skin were sand, she'd be making a zen garden, like the little one next to her bed. Her voice, her slanted eyes, her small teeth, everything about her is peaceful. Whenever I'm around her, I feel sleepy. She's not who she used to be. How is your father doing, baby? She asks after a long time of just drawing on me. He's good, I yawn. She hasn't seen him in more than a year. She used to come in and say hi sometimes when she picked me up. But after she accepted Todd's proposal last summer, she stopped. And now that I can drive, she doesn't have any reason to come by our house. The same tiny one we used to share. When my parents ate popcorn and watched movies on the leather couch we still have. And let me snuggle between them when their laughter woke me up. I don't remember cinnamon sticks on the back of our toilet. But we did have these big candles in the kitchen that smelled like orange peels as they burned. She used to help me light them whenever I asked, which was always. Sometimes it's hard to tell if he's sleeping because his lids don't fully close. Daddy. His breathing used to make me panic, the way it sounds like air escaping from a defective balloon. That's how I picture his lungs, bruised purple and withering from all the pressure. He could just be into the flickering TV, tuning me out. When I flip it off and he stirs a little, I kiss the air above his head. I cover his feet with a thinning comforter, the same floral one I remember as full and fluffy. I would crawl under it in the middle of the night, and they would let me stay between them. Then, for what seemed like no reason, my mom started crawling into my little twin bed before I could wake up and come into theirs. She started doing it so often that we moved it close to the wall, so she could squeeze herself between it and me and not worry about falling. I remember waking up to her there suffocating me. We'd be stuck to each other with sweat. 
And I remember my dad coming to stand in the doorway in the morning. He'd just shake his head for a long time and walk away. Shay, he moans as I'm leaving his room. He goes into a coughing fit. I walk over to the still full cup of water on his nightstand and help him sip it. What do you need, Daddy? When he catches his breath, he says, Guess who called me tonight? I turn on the light to see his face. I have no idea. I don't think the house phone has rung in years, except when it's been my granny. Guess. Who, I ask. Uncle Ricky, he says slowly, smiling. I have to grip the end of the bed frame and clench my teeth, but he doesn't notice. Oh, I say, let's just call him Richard. I mean, he's not blood. He's my best friend and your uncle. More than blood could make him. I open my mouth, close it, control myself enough to just say, a friend, a best one? Is that what we call people like? Never mind. He looks at me funny. He hasn't checked on you in years, I mutter. He waves his hand. Anyway, he's in town. Got divorced. He asks about you. I told him how well he'd been taking care of me. I told him, yeah, Shay's big now. She has a car, boobs and an attitude and everything. His laugh rolls into another coughing fit. I know he probably needs more water, but I turn the TV back on for him, flip off his light, and leave the room. When I sit on my bed, I realize how hard I'm shaking. I get under my covers, wrap them around my feet, pull them up to my chin, but I can't stop. I think about my driveway, the dark street it's connected to, the traffic light a few blocks away, the Taco Bell on the corner, and the oil change place, and the donut shop the junkyard that goes on for a few blocks, the corner with the boarded-up used electronics store where you turn to get to Richard's mom's house where he must be staying, where he's probably sitting right now, maybe with someone who thinks he's great, breathing and talking, maybe eating and laughing, only five minutes away. Sometimes I wake up so heavy I can't lift my head, like my hair and pillow have magnetized. Sometimes I wake up and hope that it's just a dream that I'm waking up, that if I get out of bed, I'll find a human-sized bunny making me breakfast, or an alligator on its back in the bathtub, practicing floating like a kid in swim class, and I'll know nothing has to be real yet. But the only things I find in the kitchen are dirty dishes or food I forgot to put away. I never dream anymore. I just close my eyes and wake up. I want my dad to live a long life, and I kind of want the misery to end. His and everyone's. Well, everyone who's left, two people. But his misery is all over us like a membrane. Sometimes I wish that Granny would have a stroke, just a mild one, to make her have to move into a nursing home but she's only 59 and in perfect health. I pray she'll get tired of helping with him and just quit, but I know that won't happen. She seems to need to feed him as much as he thinks he needs to be fed. My only hope is that she gets a boyfriend who talks some sense into her or moves her far away. 
Then, if I stayed strong through his bitching, I could get him thin again, or at least small enough to stand. Once I suggested a monitor. He said, a monitor? Like the kind we had for you when you was a baby? He laughed as he doused his wings in hot sauce. I'd baked them, and he was pissed about that. He kept laughing until he shook, in the same cold way that he used to laugh at my mom when they were fighting, when he was telling her she was the craziest female he's ever known, or pretending to look for his phone so he could call the hospital psych ward to come get her. You have real mental problems, he used to laugh, always worried about some imaginary other bitches. You need to be on meds. I make him a healthy early breakfast. I quietly clear off his nightstand in the darkness of his windowless room, set down a bowl of berries, a plate of scrambled egg whites with avocado and salsa and turkey bacon, a big jug of water. I put a bag of baby carrots and a bowl of apple slices within his reach. I know my trick won't work, that he will just call his mom, who will drop what she's doing to rush him a bunch of things off a dollar menu, or come over with her value-sized bottle of oil to fry him something. And when I come back, this will all be here, cold and dry to the dishes. But there's a tiny chance that she won't answer, or she'll be busy, and he'll have to just eat what I'm offering. He's still snoring as I pad back into the hallway, to the kitchen to grab my bag. It's only seven o'clock, but I can't sleep, and I'd rather go out now than stay here waiting for my name to blast through the house. I leave him a note next to his breakfast, saying I went to run errands. He doesn't know about Jamal, just like he doesn't know about a lot of things. I drive around looking for a new place, but when there aren't any, I end up back in my usual one. Behind my school, there's this little lot facing the woods. Even after school starts on Monday, no one else will ever come back here. I close my eyes. It's been months since I called on him. The last time was the beginning of June, and before that, it was February. For a while, I had a boyfriend. And this summer, I've made myself busy with my dad and a part-time job at the pool concession stand. And a few weeks ago, Jada's family invited me along on their annual end-of-the-summer trip to a water park upstate. My grandma agreed to sleep in my room and take my place. It was weird for me to be around Jada after mostly avoiding her for two months, but she didn't seem to notice, or at least she didn't say anything. I know Jamal will understand my hiatus, but even though he already knows, I'm still nervous to talk about what happened. When I open my eyes, he's in the passenger seat, eating a bag of sugar-coated nuts, smacking loudly, not looking at me. His hair is long today. Where'd you get those? You went to the mall without me, I whisper. I'm imagining all the girls who hate me, closing in on him, pecking for his number. He still hasn't looked at me yet. Well, it's not like I wanted to. I wanted to take my girl, but I don't know where she's been. I still bought her this, though. He holds up a necklace. White gold, my favorite. The little heart pendant is a locket, holding a picture of us I don't remember taking. Ah, how very cheesy of you, I sigh. He laughs, unclasping it so he can put it on me. It's short, I say. Kind of feels like a collar. Is there a chip inside so you can shock me if I go too far? 
He always laughs so genuinely at my jokes. He's physically incapable of anger. How's your dad? He asks, turning his whole body sideways in his seat so he can see me better. Still fat, I sigh. Probably 50 pounds fatter than last time you asked. I'm so sorry, baby. He takes my hand and massages it. When I start to cry, he pulls me by my shoulders to his chest and kisses my hairline, making the tears run off the side of my nose. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. Richard called my dad. He's back in town, I whisper into his chest. Maybe a little too quietly for him to hear, I think, until I feel his hold on me tighten and his breath gush over the top of my head. He breathes in heavy and taps his foot, like it's hard not to punch something. He holds me for an hour. He doesn't say anything, but he sings, in his voice that's just like a boy in a band. He sings any song I request and makes up funny ones about my life that are kind of sad but still beautiful. Promise me you'll never become famous, I beg, wiping my nose on the stomach of his t-shirt. Never, he swears. No one else will ever get you. No one, he confirms. My phone buzzes. I sit up and wipe my face. It's my dad, asking where I am and what time I can come home to help him use the bedpan and make him a burger. When I hang up and look over at the passenger seat, Jamal is already gone. I'm very aware of making him up. This isn't the story of a girl who has lost her mind. I took his name from a character on this show I used to watch all the time when I was eight, when I was living with my mom in this one-room apartment and my dad barely ever picked me up anymore, then altogether stopped. Every night I prayed that Jamal would be in my living room when I woke up in the morning, that he would take me with him through a portal in the screen. He used to look different. He's had at least five faces. His current one is based on a boy I saw last year in a department store, helping his disabled mom shop for a swimsuit. He looked at me and smiled shyly, and I looked away. I knew there was no point, that he had a girlfriend he cheated on or called names, or he stole money from his mom's purse, or he cornered drunk girls at parties with his friends. I just borrowed his face. I knew my imagination was better than he could ever turn out to be that no boy this good and gentle has ever existed. Oh, wow. Wow, Bahia. Jamal, that is scary. This coping mechanism that she has of creating this friend, this confidant. Tell me a little bit about how you arrived at this coping mechanism. Um... I I don't remember exactly how I thought of it. But I think it probably came from I didn't use it as a coping mechanism, but I remember making up a fake boyfriend for myself when I was a kid, like my perfect boyfriend and me and my friend actually both did it together and we named them some ridiculous not even real names. It was like codes so no one would know what we were talking about. But um so I just think I thought about that and how maybe not, but I feel like a lot of girls maybe do have like a, an idea of a perfect boyfriend in their mind and I just figured that it would it would make sense for someone to almost use that to to comfort them. Yeah, that is very interesting. This whole chapter is very interesting. You got Thanks. some interesting characters in here. Let's talk a little bit about them. Yeah, there's Shayna. Yep. How did you create Shayna? Where'd she come from? Shayna is um, a combination of girls that I've known or that I knew probably in high school. 
Um, and some probably other people too. She's not exactly like anybody I've known, but um, parts of her are definitely from people I've known. Okay. Have you ever known a Todd with one D? Because I should I have. I have never known a Todd with one D as in like someone that's actually named Todd with one D, but I've known a Todd with one D as far as the character, yeah. Oh, yeah. Me too. Both <laughs> of them. Um, he's delightful, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> uh, tell me a little bit about Justin. Have you ever known somebody this sick? Anybody who is this obese? I have not personally known anyone this obese, no. Um, mm-hmm. His personality, personality-wise, I have known a Justin, but, but mm-hmm. not someone that was... Obese, no. Okay. Uh, let's talk a little bit about obesity. Mm-hmm. How did you arrive at this theme, this uh, topic that you wanted to explore? Um, well, it started started off as a short story, actually. Um, I thought a little bit about what's eating Gilbert Grape, I think was maybe the beginning of my thoughts on that. But I also just thinking about um, stories where children are taking care of parents. And I think mostly it was the idea came from trying to have a metaphor for a parent that's kind of useless to help mm-hmm. a child. Very interesting. Uh, about the parents, one is on her way away from Shana, mm-hmm. and one is dependent too much on Shana. That is fascinating. Do you know anybody who has had that kind of non-parenting parents? Yes. Oh, yes. Can you talk about that, or is that too personal? Um, People, I won't say anyone's names, but friends that I've had definitely had nobody when they were a teenager, no one they could rely on, um, no parents that were stable. Not necessarily the same exact situation at all, but um, but definitely I've known people who've had, and my husband actually, um, had an abusive mother and a father that was he was not very close to, so he ended up moving out when he was a teenager and having to take care of himself, so... And I've had friends, too, that had to move out as teenagers and mm-hmm. take care of themselves. So My goodness. Uh, let's talk a little bit about your writing process mm-hmm. and your ability and willingness to go into these dark subjects because there's sexual abuse coming. Yeah. Um, how do you set yourself up to write about these dark subjects? Um, I think I just gravitate towards it. I don't know if I, I don't really have to, like, talk myself into doing it. I think I just kind of go there, and I'm not, I'm not really sure why that's kind of the the books and the movies that I tend to like usually are about darker subjects. Um, things that, um, I think need to be talked about more. Um, I didn't go into it even actually the story didn't start off being about sexual abuse. It started Mm -hmm. off just being about this girl and her father. Um, but when it turned into a novel instead of a short story that came up and like I said, she's based on some friends that I've had and all of them, the ones I'm thinking of, um, dealt with sexual abuse from their childhood. This reminds me of something I've been wanting to ask you all month. Uh, when we interviewed Dan Clefstad, I asked him, who do you write for? And he says, I write for the ear. Mm-hmm. When we asked Sharon Nesbitt Davis, who happens to be your mother, mm-hmm. what do you write for? And she says, I write for the heart. Okay. I forgot to ask Dan Libman. I'm mm. so sorry, Dan, if you're listening. <laughs> uh, and now I want to ask you, what do you write for? Who do you write for? Oh, that's a good question. Um, like, who, I guess, would be probably my younger self. I try to I think about what I would have liked to read or what would have connected to me. Even the characters are not always, they're not me. It's not autobiographical at all. But um, so I guess for me and for people I've known, um, I try to write stories that um, are from a perspective that hasn't been overdone in um, literature. Um, but as far as like the heart or the ear, I guess both a little bit. Like mm-hmm. it does, the heart 
like what it's saying matters to me, but also how it's being said is important too. Okay, very good. Um, her friend that she was estranged. Jada. Jada. Do you have a Jada in your life? I have had several Jadas, yes. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about who maybe inspired Jada? Um, I think a couple of friends I've had. Um, one, probably my best friend, one of my best friends. I have several best friends. Um, <laughs> one who's been my best friend since we were teenagers, and she lives in New York. Her name is Jenny. Um, because as you you didn't really see much of Jada in this chapter. Well, you didn't see her at all, I guess. You just you mentioned her. But she's going to be someone that's um, really loyal to Shayna and also kind of calls her calls her on her BS sometimes and, and doesn't let her get away with with um, selling herself short or, or tries at least to to guide her that way. So, yeah, I've definitely had some Jadas. Okay. There's many cultures in this first chapter, and there's two I want to touch on real quickly. Mm -hmm. One is the food culture, food deserts, yeah. good food, all that. I want to talk about your personal food culture, if you're willing. Oh, yeah. Um, as far as, like, what? What, what I do eat, you like? what I like what, to eat. Do you like to cook? Do you like to eat? Do you like ah. to go out to eat? Um, I like to go out to eat only because it's easier because I cook all the time. But um, I don't I actually like cooking now. I didn't used to. When mm -hmm. I was had my first son, I didn't really know what I was doing as far as cooking. My mom, which I don't know if she talked about this in her interview at all, but um, her mother was very domestic. And so as a like rebellious act, I guess, she was against anything that had to do with being a homemaker, so she really almost purposely did not learn how to cook. Mm -hmm. um, and so, she, and she's never enjoyed cooking. So I did not grow up really knowing much about cooking. And so actually my husband taught me to cook. He was a chef for a while at a restaurant when he was younger. And um, so I was really bad at first, but I think I'm pretty good now actually. And That's I do enjoy fascinating. it. That's fascinating. Thanks. <laughs> okay. Um, tell me what kind of food you just don't like that you will not tolerate. Mm. Something that just goes against, not even just because it tastes bad, but it just, you look at it and it actually makes you angry. Ooh, angry. Um, well, you're not an angry girl, but you know yeah. what I mean. Something that you're just like. Well, we don't eat pork. Oh. Um, and that's, my husband is Muslim, but it, it I'm Baha'i, which Baha'is can eat whatever they want. But I choose not to. I did when I was younger. I haven't since we've been together because um, he's showed me a lot of videos of <laughs> gross things about pork. So <laughs> it's hard for me now to see pork and not get grossed out, mm -hmm. which, I mean, is kind of silly because other meat is, you know, if you really think about it, I guess other meat could gross me out too if I do. Sometimes when I cook meat, I can't eat it mm -hmm. because I've seen it raw. And, and so I think I could probably be, be a vegetarian, but I'm not. Um, so the only thing that kind of makes me feel a little sick to my stomach when I see it is pork. Okay. Very interesting. Uh, the home culture. Uh-huh. Um, Justin's and Shana's home is dirty. Yeah. Uh, Todd and Zara? Zara. Zara. Mm -hmm. Todd and Zara's... It's neat. It's blinding white. It's perfect. Mm -hmm. um, tell me about, and I love how you describe that, by the way. Thanks. Tell me about your own personal home culture. What do oh, you wow. like? Do you like um, to design? I love when my home was clean. It's not, usually. <laughs> uh, well, it's not dirty as much as, you know, I have a bunch of kids. There's a lot of toys and laundry and things like that. Um, I, I love the feeling of a clean house. Um so it's, we kind of, I think we have times when our house is clean, usually when like we're having a party or something's happening. And most of the time it's, you know, there's laundry out, there's toys on the floor, there's mm -hmm. dishes. So are you a designer? 
no, that's one I cannot, I can't do that very well. I'm not good at it, which mm-hmm. I feel like I should be, yeah. but uh, I'm not. Um, my sister-in-law is really good at that, and she helped me a little bit with like picking out some of the furniture that's at our house. But um, yeah, I'm not good. Okay. I love this chapter. Thank you. So I need to read more. Uh-huh. I think our listeners would like to listen to more. Would you be willing to come back for a bonus episode? Sure. Oh, fantastic. All right. Bahia El Shabazz, thank you so much for sharing these first four weeks of April with us. Thank See you. See you in a week. Yes. Oh, wait. I yes. forgot to ask you. Is there anything you wanted to say? I always like to give you oh, a chance. Um, I, I don't know if there's anything. I should have thought about this. I know you always ask me that. Um, uh, you gave me a little prompt Is it about oh, the story or about the... Just didn't want to make sure that if there was something that you wanted to say, okay. something that was burning inside you that I forgot to touch on or... Yeah, there's nothing really burning. Okay, nothing's burning. That's good. <laughs> All right, Bahia El Shabazz, thank you so much. Thank you for having me. See you in a week. All right. The Guilty Pleasures Podcast is made possible by Rockford Writers Guild, Rockford Area Arts Council, The Shumway, and you, our listeners. Subscribe to Guilty Pleasures on iTunes or Google Play, or download podcasts from our website, rockfordwritersguild.org. Email feedback to editor at rockfordwritersguild.org. Follow us on social media. We're on Facebook at Rockford Writers Guild, and Instagram and Twitter at Guilty Pleasures. Thank you for listening. This is your producer, Jesse Kuntz. Now go write.